Once more, welcome to all of you. Welcome those of you in the overflow this morning. Welcome to those at the Franklin campus. Pastor Eric, love you all dearly. God bless you. Let's worship the Lord together. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. For several weeks now, we've been sort of walking through the Gospel of Matthew and looking at the parables of Jesus there. And this morning, a very, very interesting, very interesting passage right there at the end of Matthew chapter 25. But thumb back with me. Take your Bible, if you would, and look back with me. I want you to get a sense of where this story lives, where this part of Scripture lives. It starts, this context starts in Matthew chapter 21. You see in your Bible, Matthew chapter 21, what happens right at the beginning of Matthew 21? Can you see that? What is it? This is where it starts, this context. What is it? It's the triumphal entry. It's that glorious day when Jesus comes into Jerusalem right before the last week of his life. He comes into Jerusalem to the waving of palm branches and then Jesus begins to move through the city. And that's what happens in chapter 21, chapter 22, chapter 23. Jesus moves through the city of Jerusalem and he teaches. And his teaching on this last week, these last days of his life is is critical. It's, it's as if when you were in school, to those of you who are in school now, and you know that the test is drawing near, and the closer you get to the test, the closer you listen, because you know, you know that often the very last things said are the things that you're going to be tested on, the things you have to know. And, and, and these passages in Matthew really contain things you must know, things you need to know. In chapter 24, the disciples ask Jesus a question as they're looking at the temple. And the question pertains to the end of the world. They, they just simply ask Jesus, tell us about the end of the world. Tell us how everything is going to wrap up. And that's the section of teaching that we're in now. Into chapter 24, over into chapter 25. Jesus has three sections, three parables in chapter 25. All of them pertain to the end of the world. All of them are words about the judgment, the final judgment uh, when Christ returns. And at the end of chapter 25, this is where we begin this morning, verse 31. This is sometimes called the parable of the sheep and the goats. That The parable of the sheep and the goats. Remember the word parable is parabole. It means to cast, to throw alongside. Jesus will take a story or even in this case a figure of speech, a, a simile. And he'll cast it alongside your life. Cast it alongside reality so that you can learn something or understand something more clearly because of the parable. Now, chapter 25, verse 31, the parable of the sheep and the goats is actually a very, very short parable. Don't miss this. It's a very short parable. It's just really a a simile. It's a place where Jesus says the final judgment, it's going to be like when a shepherd calls all the flock in at the end of the day and separates out the sheep and the goats. That's as far as it goes. That parable then flows into something else, and it does not extend the sheep and the goats. This is not a whole story about sheep and goats, not at all. It's just a quick simile. It's like this, but then Jesus moves from a parable to a preview. And the biggest part of this passage is not a parable. It's not a story. This is a preview. This is a conversation. As a matter of fact, this is going to be a moment in your life. A moment from your own future. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Notice how short the parable is and then listen to the preview of what the judgment will be like. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. 
But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit upon His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in His presence and He will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at His right hand and the goats at His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and, and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Isn't that amazing? Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. And they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal punishment. Years ago, I became acquainted with a family that lived in, in our community. They, they just started coming to church. It was, it was a mom and, and two children, and one of them was an older teenage boy. And I started hitting it off with the teenage boy. The more we talked, the more I realized that, that as, 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 as good as these folks were, there, there were some real problems in that home, real problems in that family. And honestly, the problems all, all had to do with the father, the, the dad. The dad was a decent man in that he worked every day and he provided for the family. He provided very well for the family physically and materially. But, but this was a very bitter man, a very angry man. He stayed withdrawn from the family and he would have nothing to do with God, nothing to do with church, nothing at all to do with, with the family. He just simply abandoned them even though he continued to come home every night. Very soon as the mother started coming to church, she started coming to the altar and she would cry and pray. And she started asking me to pray for her husband, just to pray for this man, that God would turn his heart, that God would somehow remove that bitterness and anger. And she asked me if I wouldn't mind coming and visiting the father one day. And I said, of course, I'd be happy to come see him. When's a good time? She said, pretty much any time but the weekend, never on the weekend. And and then I asked, is that because he works? Is it his work schedule? Does he work on Saturday and and Sunday? She said, no, that's not it. He works all week. But on Saturday nights, he's usually singing in a church somewhere. 
I said, excuse me? She said, he's in a gospel quartet and, and he travels and he goes from church to church and, and, and they sing. I'm thinking, how many husbands you got? I mean, what are you talking about? This same man that we're praying for, the one that takes you, uh, his, his, the, the trouble he gives you, brings you to the altar every Sunday, the man that won't go to church with his family, you're telling me he travels every weekend from church to church and he sings about Jesus? Yes. That was it. That was the man. That was his story. This bitter, angry, awful man. This man who had nothing to do with his family and nothing to do with Jesus at all. The man who would not go to church for himself would travel and sing with a quartet. I'm telling you, I have trouble getting that. I have trouble understanding that. And you should too. It's a kind of contradiction. And it really has no place in the gospel. Nothing to do with the Christian life. And I think something instinctively, something of the Holy Spirit tells us this, that a genuine Christian is going to live like a genuine Christian every day. A, a true believer, a genuine Christian is going to live like a Christian. You're going to see something in her life. You're going to see something in the way he talks and the way he walks and the way he deals with his family. A genuine Christian is going to be different a real Christian is going to live like a real Christian every day. It seems to be common sense. I mean, I think that all of us would have to agree that that makes sense. Except the vast, vast majority of people that you know, especially those who call themselves Christians, they don't necessarily live like Christians every day. You hear that, you know that. It's one of the greatest criticisms of any church in the world and, and even ours. People will continue to say that they don't want to go to church because of all of the hypocrites, all of the people who claim to be Christians but do not live like Christians. Now let's be perfectly clear because I'm afraid this is something that we're never ever able to make everybody understand. Salvation is not a matter of being a good person. My becoming a Christian does not have anything to do with my ability to live like a Christian every day. That's not how a person becomes a Christian. Are you hearing me? You do not become a Christian by doing good things or by going to church or by feeding the hungry or clothing the naked or visiting the sick. That is not how a person becomes a Christian. Christianity, becoming a Christian, a genuine Christian, is not a matter of your works. It's not a matter of your deeds. Please help me spread the word because most of the world does not understand this. People still think that they're going to be okay with God if they're a good person, if they're kind to their neighbors, if they put on a smile, and if they give to the poor. People really believe that that somehow is going to carry them to heaven. But that is not the case. It is never the case, and it will never be the case. You are not so good a person that you don't need Jesus. You're never going to be such a good neighbor that you don't need a Savior. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the Savior, and Jesus is the only way to heaven. And the only way to become a Christian is to surrender your heart to Jesus, this is the gospel. It is a good, good word about grace, about getting the forgiveness for your sins that you do not deserve and you can never, ever earn. 
Salvation is the gift of grace. Which brings us back to this text, to this scripture, because this scripture makes it look a little different if you're not reading very carefully. It's a powerful scripture about judgment. Understand and notice in this scripture, there are four things absolutely clear, four things, undeniable things about the last day. Number one, Jesus is going to come again. Jesus is going to return this time in his glory. The first time Jesus came to earth, he came in the form of a servant. He came with humility. He emptied himself of all of his glory. And he became like one of us. And he walked among us. He walked as a servant. He walked among the poor and the hungry. He walked among the sinners. He stepped down, humbled himself, took on the form of a human being. But this second time, when he comes back again, the next time the world sees him, it will not be in the form of a servant. It will not be in the form of a human being. Next time we see Jesus, he will come in his glory. This is certain, brothers and sisters, that this is is not something that we argue about or something you can doubt. It's an essential part of the gospel. Jesus came the first time, but he comes again. And the next time he comes, he will come in glory and he will come to judge. The first time Jesus came, he says he did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. The next time he comes, he will come to judge. He will sit over all of the nations, over all of the people who have ever lived, and he will judge. It's certain. There's no doubt about this. It's clear in the scripture. Jesus will come again, and he will come to judge And understand, his judgment will divide the human race. We love to divide ourselves. We have a thousand ways to divide ourselves by race or by education or by economical factors or neighborhood. But in the end, when Jesus separates us, there are only going to be two divisions, two separations. The blessed and the cursed. The blessed and the cursed. And two destinations for those, the blessed, those who are saved by grace, they will find their eternal home in heaven with the Lord. Those who are cursed, those who have never surrendered to the salvation that Christ offers, they will spend their eternity in hell with the devil. That's what the scripture says. It's as plain as the nose on your face. No way to doubt this, no place to argue with those things are certain. You will be judged by the Lord Jesus and he is the only one in the position to judge you and to judge me. But what is the basis of the judgment? This is where this text sometimes throws people for a loop because the judge, it says, separates the people like a sheep, like a shepherd might separate the sheep from the goats. And he says, come to me, to those on his right, come, come and, and enjoy everything that my father has to give you because I was Hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was sick and you came to visit me. It it almost sounds there like the way these people are getting to heaven is because they did so many good things on earth. It almost sounds that way. But don't make the mistake of reading it that way. That's not what the scripture teaches. He is the judge and he is issuing final pronouncements on the life of every person. And the basis of judgment is not the good things they have done. That's not the basis of judgment. 
but it is the evidence. Do you understand? It's a judge. It's like a courtroom. And the evidence presented is the life that each person has lived. You do not earn your salvation by being a good person. But listen to me. If you're a true Christian, if Jesus has truly transformed and converted your heart, you will show it every single day by the life you live. You don't earn it with the life you live, but you will show it. You will demonstrate. Jesus says you're going to be known by the fruit that you bear. And a person who is a genuine Christian, genuinely saved by grace, their life is going to be different. Their life is going to bear a different kind of fruit. These good works, the taking care of the poor and and clothing the naked, that's not how these people have become saved, become blessed. But it is the evidence that they have been saved by grace. You understand that? Did you get that part? It's the evidence Genuine Christians demonstrate that they are genuine Christians every day by the life they lead. At the end of the day, in Jesus' time, shepherds would bring in the flock. And honestly, from a distance, it's very difficult to tell the sheep and the goats apart. So the shepherd would call the flock near. At the end of the day, the goats, they didn't have that thick wool, and so they typically needed to be sheltered. So at the end of the day, the shepherd would bring in the flock, and he would separate out the sheep from the goats and shelter the goats. And this is the image Jesus calls to mind. Jesus, the good shepherd, at the end of the day, he makes the final separation. Separates the sheep from the goats, the blessed from the cursed. It's amazing what he says. He says, he turns to the ones on his right, the sheep, the ones that are blessed. And he says, come, come and share the blessings of my father because I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison. You you visited me. I was naked. You clothed me. And they say, when? When did these things happen? Interesting. Interesting. It's interesting that on that final day, when you and I stand before the only one who is qualified to judge us, when we stand before him, we find out what really mattered to him, what mattered about our lives. And do you understand what matters about your life? What matters about your life are the everyday opportunities to do good. Do you see that? The basis of judgment really isn't how many times you came to church. Coming to church is good, folks. I'm all for it. But listen to me. Nobody, nobody necessarily shows that they're a Christian because they come to church. Anybody can come to church. That's not what Jesus measures at the end, your attendance record at church. It doesn't say, you know, you were really good to your family. You were a great mom or a great dad. I, I tell you, you were always there. You were a den mother for the Boy Scouts. You were a room mother for the elementary school. No, none of that. Everybody's good to their family. That's not the basis of judgment. You think that these are the things that matter. But on judgment day, these don't seem to be the things that come up. What comes up are the everyday opportunities to do something for someone. These little opportunities that honestly you, 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 you take advantage of or you neglect, but you don't even think much of it. That's the point. The righteous ones, they say, when? when? We hardly remember these things. What matters 
or all of the needs that you face every single day and the people around you and how you respond to them. What matters is you're living a life of love. That's what demonstrates that you belong to the shepherd. I tell you, modern technology is amazing. One of the things I love, one of the recent technological advances at our church are those little kickstands on the doors out there as you walk out. I don't know why it took the trustees so long to add those little kickstands at the bottom of the door. Because before we had those, it always kind of trapped me. I love you guys. And at the end of the worship, I would go and I'd hold the door open. But there are like 300 of you. And I would hold the door for the first person. I'd say, good to have you. Nice to see you at church. I'd hold the door. You'd walk out. And then you know what? There's somebody right behind you. And the second person walks out. And you understand, once you start holding the door for a long line of people... There is no place to close the door. There's no way to close the door. So I would stand there for the first hundred of you and hold the door. And y'all just walk out and smile as I hold the door. But eventually, I get sort of tired of holding the door. And while at the beginning I enjoy being nice, eventually I'm done being nice. You ever had this experience? So finally, on about person 225, I let the door go right on your nose, buddy. I don't care anymore. I'm done holding the door. Do you understand Never had that feeling? When some of us read this passage, it brings these feelings up. This feeling of of compassion fatigue. I love to help people, but the problem is there is no end to the people in the world I can help. I love to visit the sick. The problem is there are two hospitals in town and a whole bunch of hospitals in Nashville. And if I start visiting the sick, I could be visiting the sick from now till Jesus comes. And never get through all of the sick people. All of the hungry people and the thirsty people. I want to be this person that Jesus talks about in the scripture. But I'm telling you, there are weeks, there are days even when I just give up. I don't know how to keep on doing this. The world is so full of people in need. And this is part of what makes our situation in the year 2010 a little bit more complicated than your grandparents knew. It has to do with technology. Do you understand that today we're recording this service in two ways, by video and also by audio? Do you understand, by by this time tomorrow, this sermon will be on the internet, and we have people from all over the world who will be listening to this sermon. I, I find that absolutely amazing. People in Guatemala, people in Germany, people in states all over the United States. I don't know why they listen. I don't even know how they find us. But it's interesting how technology makes people who are far away suddenly seem very close to us. Technology brings those who are far away closer. But the interesting thing about our technology is it also, it brings those far away closer to us, but it makes those who are closer to us actually seem further away Which brings me to your cell phone. Let's talk about your cell phone. I was at a conference a few weeks ago and I was meeting a pastor for the first time, a pastor. As we talked, his cell phone went off in his back pocket. He said, hold it, hold it. I'm talking to him. Hold it, hold it. He pulls out his phone. Hello? Okay. What am I supposed to do now? I was talking to him. But when the phone rings... He's not with me anymore. He's far away. He is with who's ever on the line. Hello? Yes. 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 (laughs) No way. No. (laughs) It was apparently really funny, but just to him. Do you understand? 
I'm standing here watching him talk to... I'm here. Hello, I'm here. I am right beside him. But I might as well have been 100 miles away because the person 100 miles away now has him on the phone. You understand? Suddenly the person far away is close and the person close is far away. You ever been in a house with a teenager with a cell phone? You might as well be on another planet. They will text right in your face as if you are a hundred miles away. Isn't it strange? Heard an amazing story about a guy having lunch with his buddy. They were sitting there in a restaurant and, and the guy could hear his buddy's phone buzzing in his back pocket and it kicked one. And finally the guy said, listen, go ahead and take that. Just take that. You know what the friend said? He said, no, I'm not going to take that. You have gone to the trouble to meet me and and be with me here. Whoever is on the phone hasn't gone to that trouble. I'm just going to pay attention to you. Did you even know that was an option? Because our technology has this capacity to make people far away suddenly seem close. And this is part of our trouble here. Because every time you turn on the television now, you will see images of people somewhere on the planet suffering greatly. Your grandparents, your great-grandparents, they never could have seen those images. They wouldn't have known. But we know about it all of the time. And the images of horror, the, the atrocities continue to pour out across the Internet, through Twitter now, and, and on your television. And it never, ever ends. There's an earthquake in Haiti and it breaks our hearts because we see the images of people suffering. And then the phone number comes up and the address where we can send our money. And we send our money and we help because we want to help. But the earthquake in Haiti becomes the earthquake in Chile. And by that time, we're all done helping. The the genocide in Rwanda becomes the genocide in Darfur. And eventually we just shut down. That's the problem with the world in which we live. It's the problem with our human hearts, our human minds. We are not designed to be able to understand or absorb planetary suffering. We're not able to understand able to grasp, honestly able to do much about the suffering all around the world. And yet every single minute of every single day, we are overwhelmed with images, overwhelmed with opportunities to give, to help, to call, to adopt. It never, ever ends. And the effect of this for many of us, the effect is that we grow very, very numb. We just simply grow numb to it. One more image of a starving child on TV is not going to grab our heart anymore. We've seen a lot of them. That numbness, the hopelessness, the sense of helplessness. What in the world can I do? I can't possibly, can't possibly take upon my own responsibility the suffering of a whole planet. You see what I'm talking about? That the technology, the pictures on television make those suffering people far away, suddenly very, very close. But at the same time, it makes us blind to the suffering around us. You see, you grow very numb because all of the suffering that you've heard about in the world. And therefore, you go out into your world. You go into the place where you work. You go to your school and you don't see them. You don't see needy people anymore. Your heart has grown cold. Your eyes have grown blind. You cannot deal with the suffering of a planet. But as a result of that, you don't do much to deal with the suffering in your neighborhood. Don't you understand? 
On that final day, these people, you and I, will be called to give an account. But we will not be asked to give an account for all the things we could have never done. We'll never be judged upon the basis of people that we could not have possibly helped. But we will be judged upon the basis of what we did to help the ones we could. Every single one of us in this house, we know people who need help. We know people who need love. We stood here this morning and we made a list of lonely people and sick people and suffering people, people without jobs, children without parents, and on and on the list goes. These aren't people far away. These are the people you know. These are the people you can help. And on that final day, you're suddenly going to realize that what mattered all along, all the time, what Jesus was looking for was what you would do in your everyday life when you encountered people who needed your help. The people you see, the people you meet, the people you know. What will you do for them? Will you even see them? When, they say, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you sick? And Jesus says, whenever, whenever you saw one of these, the least, the least, the most invisible, the least important, the least of these, my brothers and sisters, if you help them, you are helping me. Do you understand? These people in the world that Jesus loves, he takes it very personally when you help them. He takes it very personally when you don't. When, they say, when did we do this? And that's the amazing part about it. That's what I love. This idea that they went through their lives, just the evidence of their faith, the evidence of their experience of grace, the evidence of these lives of of, of love and compassion that they live. And it's almost very unselfconscious. They don't give to people in order to think that one day they'll be rewarded for it. It never enters their mind. They hardly even remember the difference that they made. They're not even thinking about helping people. It's just their instinct. People who know the Lord, people who love the Lord, they just love like this. It's sort of effortless and and thoughtless. It really doesn't take that much energy when Christ is in your heart. They just do it. They don't ask for a receipt. You understand? They don't need credit for it. They don't even think about what's coming back to them. And that's the way a Christian helps. You you do it for the sake of the other. You do it for the sake of Christ. You never even think about what might come back to you. And the best example of this I've heard lately was from a church in Tennessee. A church that loved the Lord and loved people and loved kids in their neighborhood. They started thinking and praying and asking God to let them have a ministry, a program, something that would make a difference in the lives of the kids in their neighborhood. They wanted to help the kids, and the kids needed help. They started to pray and pray, and the pastor started to pray. And One day out in the community, the pastor was going by a church. It was a church close by in the community, but another denomination. Whoa, it was another denomination but he noticed that the church had kids everywhere. That afternoon, about 60 kids. So he stopped and went and talked to the pastor about what they were doing and and how they were helping. And it turns out this church of another denomination had a tremendous after-school program for the very kids that, that the church wanted to help. Problem is they were about to be shut down because they had no air conditioning. 
No air conditioning. And y'all know how hot it is in Tennessee in the summer? You can't put 60 kids in a room without air conditioning. They were about to close their doors. The pastor got an idea. Do you understand the idea yet? Do you understand what can happen here? He goes back to his church and he says, I've got the answer. Let's buy. Let's buy a central air conditioning unit for this church up the road. Let's buy it for them. What do you think his church said? How's that going to help us? Can you imagine people asking that? How's that going to help us? How's that going to help our church? Pastor said, it won't help us one bit. But it'll help the kids. Understand how that works? It won't help us at all. But it'll help those kids. $20,000, they sent it up the road. Help the church up the road. Help the kids. No, you can't help everybody. No, you, you really can't take care of the, all the problems in the world. You, you can't. You will never be able to visit all the sick ones. You'll never, ever be able to clothe all the naked ones. You, you'll never do it all. But do you understand something very important? You can do what you can do. And what you can do, you must do. You belong to Christ. This isn't how you earn his love or his grace, but it's a great way that you demonstrate it every day. It's it's a life of love. Jesus says, when you are out there helping people, when you're out there feeding them and giving them something to drink and clothing them, and you did for them, you were doing that for me. Understand that? Jesus loves the people of the world. He loves us all. So when we help, others around us. Jesus takes that personally. And when we don't help those around us, Jesus takes that personally. And one day, one day, we will answer to him. Pray with me. It's amazing to think, Lord Jesus, that one day you will come in glory. You will come in a way that every eye will see you and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord, that you are glorious, that you are great. One day you will come in glory. Every eye will see you. The amazing thing, Lord, is that the scripture reminds us that in the meantime, between this day and that day, Lord, you're going to somehow come to us nearly every day. In a disguise we won't recognize. You will come to us in the person who is hungry. You will come to us in the person who is thirsty or lonely or depressed or in need of money. You will come to us in the disguise of the person who needs us. And when we help them, Lord, somehow, amazingly, we'll be helping you. One day you come in glory, but Lord, in the meantime, you come to us every single day ingloriously. You come to us, Lord, humbly through faces we do not recognize as you, as your children, as the ones you love, the least of these. Help us, Lord, to see you in the faces of those around us. Help us, Lord, because we are your people, because we are Christians, because we love you. Help us 
to love them. Everybody around us. Let our hearts be broken, Lord, with all of the suffering of the world. Let our hearts be broken with all of those things that break your great heart. And as long as we have breath and as long as we have resources and as long as we have strength, Lord, let us be found serving others, every other person near us. We can't help them all, but we can help the ones we can. Help us, Lord, to help others. We pray in your holy name. Amen.